Welcome to the First Baptist Cadillac podcast. First Baptist Cadillac is a growing intergenerational family of faith whose mission is to make disciples of Jesus Christ. Join us each week as we engage God's word together. We would love to hear from you. Please contact us at firstbaptistcadillac.org or text WELCOME to 231-261-1112. Please turn with me in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 5, verse 22. We're going to be there for the next nine weeks. Galatians chapter 5, verse 22. As we embark on week number six of the sermon series, The Fullness of of life, which comes to us from John chapter 10, verse 10. Jesus said to his disciples, and he says to all of us, he says, I came that they may have life and have it to the full. Or as the ESV calls it, life abundant, a victorious, overcoming, fruitful life. And not just someday in the sweet by and by, because I think sometimes we yeah, you know, someday when I'm with Jesus, then life will be full. Life will be, and it certainly will. It'll be the ultimate in fullness. But let us not make mistake in thinking that what Jesus is talking about here in John chapter 10 is just future, but it is for today in the here and now. And the key elements of a full or abundant life include the fruit of the Spirit, the gifts of the Spirit, the community of the Spirit, and the warfare of the Spirit. So we'll be working our way through each of these elements in the months to come, but today we begin a new segment of this, which is the fruit of the Spirit. Because a full or abundant life will be characterized by an abundance of an abundance of the fruit of the Spirit. How do I know? Because Jesus said in John chapter 15, verse 5, that verse that we'll keep coming back to, He said, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears how much? Much fruit. Much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. And this reminds us that fruit is not something we produce by trying. That is not the point of this sermon series, is to make you feel guilty so that you grit your teeth and try harder and harder and harder only to fail again and again and again. That is not the point. But fruit is something we bear by abiding by abiding. And the word abide means it means to stay or remain. Chad's definition of abiding is this. Be ruthlessly vigilant to do everything possible to cling to Jesus, the life-giving vine. To do everything possible to cling to Jesus, the life-giving vine. As, As if your very life depends upon it because you know what? It does. It does. And so we have one job, right? And I love how this simplifies our lives. You have one job, I have one job, and it is to cling to Jesus. Practically speaking, we abide in Jesus when we do three things. When we fellowship with him, those unhurried times of lingering in his presence, of communing with him, of just sitting with him, of listening to him, and him listening to us, fellowship, We abide in Jesus when we trust Him. When what we see with our physical eyes doesn't make sense, but we say, you know what, even though I can't see your hand, I I trust your character, and I know that it is good. I will trust you no matter what. And then when we obey Him, 
There's definitely an obedience component to abiding. You can't be close to and communing with Jesus and intimate with Him and be off being rebellious against Jesus and doing your own thing. And all of this results in, this abiding results in the spiritual fruit of Galatians 5.22 where it says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Now, a few things I want us to observe about this list that will probably help us in the future as we work our way through this. Um, First, the list is a contrast. The list is a contrast, and it's a contrast with what we experienced last week. First of all, if we go back to Galatians 5.22, what's the very first word? But. Okay, and so but signals a difference from what came before, and what came before was in last week's sermon, it was characteristics of those who live according to the flesh, the flesh. And there was this laundry list of sins and grotesque things and attitudes and actions, and we looked at that list and we could probably see ourselves in various places in it. And so what we're hearing here is this contrast that tells us, you know what? Those who live according to the flesh live like this. Those who live by abiding in the Spirit will bear fruit that looks like this. So there's a contrast being made here. And that contrast is like night and day. And here's where I want to make a very important point with you this morning. And that is this. We are more than forgiven by Christ. We are more than forgiven by Christ. Sometimes I see an old school bumper sticker. I'm just a sinner saved by grace. Right? It's true, right? And I don't want to minimize what it is to be a sinner saved by grace. But church, you are more than that. You are more than that. And what I mean is... We are new creations in Christ. We are new creations in Christ. Because if we stop at being sinners who are forgiven by Christ, and that's the end of the line, then we would just have the low expectation that, you know what, I'm just going to have to muddle through until Jesus comes back. And I am what I am, and that's the end of the story. And that is not what God's Word teaches us. Jesus said, I came that they may have life and have it to the full, life that is abundant, victorious, and fruitful. We are new creations in Jesus Christ. And thank God for his forgiveness because the new creation part wouldn't happen without it. But now he is actively at work in our lives producing fruit. And Galatians 5.22 highlights this. It is a contrast with those who live according to the flesh. The next thing to notice about this list of the fruit of the Spirit is it is not exhaustive. It is not exhaustive. There are some wonderful, great, Christ-like qualities that are listed here. Wonderful stuff, all of which are important. But there are some other qualities that certainly could be added that aren't here. For example, a faith does not appear in the list of the fruit of the Spirit here in Galatians 5.22. Hope does not appear in this list. And does anybody want to argue with me? Well, you probably do, so I probably shouldn't make the invitation. Um, That faith and hope are not important Christ-like qualities? Of course they are. But for whatever reason, here in this list of spiritual fruit, 
Faith and hope are not listed. That tells me that this list is not exhaustive. It is representative, and these are very important, and we're going to actually spend nine weeks unpacking them because of their importance, but the list is not exhaustive. Next, the list is universal. The list is universal. And what I mean by that is that the attributes mentioned here in this list are to apply to everyone. They are to apply to everyone and not just to some. And perhaps that is implied by the fact that if you really want to get technical here, this is called the fruit singular of the Spirit and not the fruits plural of the Spirit. This is a collective unit that goes together, um, I believe, because it's meant for everyone, all. It is universal. Now, this is different than gifts of the Spirit, isn't it? How so? Well, because as we know from 1 Corinthians 12, 11, it tells us all these, referring to spiritual gifts, are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as He wills. So some people get certain spiritual gifts, others get different spiritual gifts, and God gives based on His sovereign desire and will. That is not how it works with the fruit of the Spirit. We are meant to have all of the fruit of the Spirit, in contrast to spiritual gifts where we just have some. All right? Now, fruit is the mark of spiritual maturity. And the reason I want to highlight that is because giftedness is not the mark of spiritual maturity. And we often get that backwards, don't we? Um, This is particularly relevant because one of the great failures, I believe, of the modern church is that we elevate people based on gifts rather than fruit, right? Gifts are shiny. Gifts stand out. Gifts produce a religious product for religious consumers. And if we're not careful, we can be religious consumers. And so we elevate people according to great gifts And then we discard them when they crash and burn because they lack the necessary maturity evidenced by spiritual fruit. Do we not have far too many examples of this in modern-day American Christianity? Is it not almost weekly we hear of another spiritual leader with amazing gifts who has a moral failure and crashes and burns? And it's easy for us to pile on at that point and to, to join with the mob. But again, maybe we're part of the problem because as religious consumers, what we do is we elevate these folks and we put them on pedestals and we idolize them and we get them to sign our books. And it's like, wow, back up just for a second because ultimately the mark of spiritual maturity and leadership is not giftedness but fruit. So church, may we first and foremost be discerning fruit inspectors rather than impatient and demanding religious consumers. So a few things about this list. Um, It's a contrast. It is not exhaustive. It is universal. Lastly, the list is organized. The list is organized. There there is some debate about this, and I'm not going to be too dogmatic, but a a common breakdown of this list of spiritual fruit looks like this. Um, Gifts one through three tend to focus on God. Love, joy, peace. 
Gifts 4 through 6 tend to focus on others, patience, kindness, goodness. And then gifts or fruits 7 through 9 focus on ourselves, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Again, there's some debate if that's really Paul's intent here, but um, what I believe is beyond debate is that Paul was intentional about beginning the list with love. Love. I believe that that is absolutely certain. Love is there first on purpose. Again, if we go back to the list in Galatians 5.22, but the fruit of the Spirit is love. It is number one in the list. It's where it all begins. It could be argued that if the fruit of love is present, then all the other will follow. As Paul said in Colossians 3.14, he says, and above all... Now, that's a powerful statement. Above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And then he said in 1 Corinthians 13, 13, so now faith, hope, and love abide these three, but the greatest of these is love. So again, it is no wonder that Paul starts this list of spiritual fruit with love. It is the greatest of these, and it holds the rest together. Our purpose this morning for the rest of our time, is to answer the question, what does it look like when we abide in Christ and bear the spiritual fruit of love? What does that look like? What does a life that is fruitful and abundant in love look like? And then I think it is important for us to, to make some, some judgments and to say, how am I doing? And again, the point being not to try harder, but to abide more. So the place we have to begin is by defining love, because in our culture and in our language, love is pretty fuzzy these days, is it not? Uh, Much of this is due to the fact that we have one word for love in the English language. We have one word from love. And so I say things like, I love my pugs, which Friday was actually National Pug Day. You probably didn't know that, but I, I hope you celebrated it. Um, but then I can say, I love my wife. And not in that order, although she would question that at times, probably, all right? I love the Cincinnati Reds. I love barbecue. I love Jesus. Isn't that something? I, I love barbecue and I love Jesus. All the same word, but again, not the same level in the same kind of way. So you see the problem. When you love everything, ultimately it means nothing. So in English, we have one word that doesn't really help us. It makes love a very fuzzy concept. But good news for us this morning, there are many words for love in Greek, the language in which the New Testament was written. And those words for love, they they help to provide nuance and specificity, which is missing in our English. For, For example, in Greek, there is the word phileo, phileo, and that refers to friendship. All right, the city of Philadelphia is the city of brotherly love. It's the city of friendship. Although, if you've been to Philadelphia, I'm not quite so sure that that's the case. Um, but how blessed is the person who, who gives and receives phileo, the, the love among friends? We need that. And so that's one kind of love in the Greek. Uh, another is eros. Eros, which is the love of attraction. From eros, we get our word erotic. It refers to love in the romantic sense, which is primarily the way our culture defines love, isn't it? 
That's what you see on the, portrayed on the screen and in popular music. And by this definition, love is something that happens to you. Love is something you fall into. But if that's how love is defined, if you can fall into love, you can also fall out of love. Which is why marriage, both outside the church and inside the church, has become so disposable. This is how we define love. And if we're not experiencing attraction, experience, romanticism, then we're out of love and we as human beings have the right to do... And, and, boy, if I've heard this a hundred times, I would be a, a very rich man. People say, God wants me to be happy. And so they dispose of a marriage where they're not experiencing eros. That is not biblical. All right, that is not biblical. We have bought into a false understanding of what true love is in a marriage. Um, the next Greek word is storge, storge, which refers to love amongst family, like a mother for a baby, a child for a parent, siblings for one another. It, it runs much deeper than friendship love of phileo, and it is certainly different than eros. It is its own kind of love with its own Greek word. And so you see we have these nuances and specificity in the Greek language. And, and if I could just back up for eros for a second, and I'm going to really get in trouble with this one, but... Um, the Hallmark Channel. We're moving into that time of year, aren't we? <laughs> Jingle love and all these, you know. Um, my wife and daughter love those holiday Hallmark movies. Anything wrong with those? Yeah, yeah, yeah all the men. <laughs> All the men just said, yes, there's a lot wrong with them, all right? And, and I'm not telling you never to watch a Hallmark movie. Here's the danger, though, and we actually had this conversation with our daughter. Um, it can portray love as eros, and not in a sexual way necessarily, but in a romantic kind of way which sells young ladies and wives and women in general on that it, it can create a certain current of discontent to say that's not my life well you know what that's not anybody's life all right that's not that's not anybody so just <laughs> except for christie's that's her life but um <laughs> anyway now that i've made a lot of enemies this morning. Again, okay, thank you for editing that out, Ben. But I, I just, it, again, it's one of those things we can follow and say, hey, this isn't inappropriately sexual, it's not pornography, is it? But I think there could be a dangerous element that lingers under that, that creates a certain level of discontent that leads us astray. So enough of that. So finally, we have the Greek word agape. Agape. This is the word for love in Galatians 5.22. It's different than phileo. It's different than eros. It's different than storge. This is the love of God. This is the love of God. And 1 John 4.7 says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. God is is agape. Love is a fundamental characteristic of who God is. So if we want to understand God, 
there's a certain sense, and we got to understand what agape is all about. And this kind of love, in contrast to phileo, eros, and storge, is defined like this. Agape love is the steady intention of the will to another's highest good. The steady intention of the will to another's highest good. Which is pretty amazing when you think about it, that God is this. How does that make you feel about how he relates to you? God's intent is for your highest good. He is for you and not against you. He is working out all things for your good. Why? Because he is love. He is the God of agape. Now, when his spirit dwells within us, guess what kind of people we're to be? Same kind of people were to be agape people intent on the highest good of others. And I believe this kind of agape love has five aspects to it. We're going to work our way rather quickly through them. First of all, this kind of love is volitional. This kind of love is volitional, meaning that it is a matter of the will. Eros is very passive, and you fall into, and you, uh, it's about attraction. It happens to you, and that is not the case with agape love, which is volitional. It is a matter of the will. It is a choice. It is a choice we make regardless of how we feel. A choice we make regardless of how we feel. Oftentimes, in spite of how we feel, Right? Now contrast that again with eros, the love of attraction, the love you fall into based upon how you feel. Not so with agape. And, and here's the real hard truth about life at our, our house, the Zaka home. There are times where I don't necessarily feel love for my spouse, for Christy. And I guarantee she would tell you there are times she doesn't necessarily feel love for me. But our love for each other is not defined by the whimsical nature of how we feel. It is rooted in something much deeper in God's agape love. And here's the thing about choosing to love even when you don't necessarily feel like it. When I choose to do the loving thing, the feelings tend to follow. When I choose to do the loving thing, the feelings tend to follow. I was reading a, a book this week and I was talking about this, and it was about a woman who was so disgusted by her husband and um, her, her strategy because of her great anger and hatred for him at that point was um, she was going to just be so syrupy and kind and loving to him artificially, outwardly, and then when he kind of got used to that, she was going to divorce him because it would bring such great pain to him. And the counselor said, I don't think I would do this necessarily, but the counselor said, all right, yeah, do that. Do that. But what happened was, as the woman began to act willfully and loving her husband, she reached the point where her plan was to divorce her husband. You know what she decided? She decided she loved her husband because her actions preceded her feelings. And when we choose to do the loving thing, the feelings tend to follow. Far too many of us sit around waiting for feelings to come before we act in love, 
and you're still waiting, aren't you? And it's backwards. But inevitably, when we act regardless of how we feel, wouldn't you know it? All of a sudden, the feelings of love come quickly. So, agape love is volitional. It is also unconditional. Unconditional, meaning it is not dependent on the recipient of our love being, quote, and I put it in quotes on purpose, worthy of it. And you better be glad for that. You better be glad for that. It ought to stir within us the deepest of gratitude to God. Why? Look around. We're a pretty unworthy bunch. We're a pretty, not a pretty, we're an extremely unworthy bunch, completely unworthy of his love. We who by our sin rejected God, spit in his face, nailed him to a cross, at enmity with him, we are as unworthy as they come, but God chose to love us anyway. In fact, Romans 5.8 says, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. In our great state of unworthiness, God showed love by sending Jesus to die for us, reminding us that agape love is unconditional. It is not dependent on the recipient of love being, quote, worthy of it. And now, as people of the Spirit of God who have Him dwelling within us, we are called to love the same way, unconditionally, even those who seem unworthy to love. Just as Jesus said in Matthew 5.43, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, love your enemies. Just as we were enemies of God and he loved us. And pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. I think these are potentially some of the hardest verses in all the Scriptures. I know from my years as a pastor, some of you have been profoundly hurt, abused. And the scars and the pain, you still wrestle with them every single day. And in the natural, there is no way on earth that you could love those who have hurt you so deeply. But as I continue to bring up, we are not people who live in the natural. We are people who live in the supernatural. And the omnipotent power of God's Holy Spirit dwelling within us gives us the ability to exercise volitional, unconditional, agape love even toward those who have hurt us profoundly. So, agape love is volitional. It is unconditional. It is also sacrificial. Sacrificial. And of course, the greatest example of God's sacrificial agape love is what? John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. I, I, I love the simplicity. For God so loved that he gave. He gave. And not just from his surplus, not just from his leftovers or from what would have been comfortable, God gave from his best 
His very own Son, He gave sacrificially. And 1 John 3.16 says it this way, By this we know love that He laid down His life for us. You want to know what love looks like? Look at the cross. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. By the power of the Holy Spirit dwelling within us, we are called to lay down our lives just like Jesus did. Now, you know, when it comes to laying down our lives, we think of big grandiose things like falling on a grenade or run, you know, pushing someone out of the way of a speeding bus. And it's like, the, yes, yes, that's one of, of, of laying down your life, but I believe it is much simpler and much more day-to-day than that. Um, for some of you, laying down your life would be laying down the remote control, letting somebody else have their way, Right? For some of you, laying down your life would be getting up out of the chair and doing the dishes. Be making the bed. It'd be doing the things that are a sacrifice to you, but for the good of the other. There are a million, billion different ways every day that we are able to lay down our lives in simple, practical, profound ways that show love to the other because we're not in it for ourselves. We're in it in what is best and good for them. Again, not something we're capable of in the natural. In our flesh, we want the remote. We want the chair. We want to be in control. We want to do our thing. We don't want to help. We want to just be who we want to be and do what we want to do. That's in the natural. That's the flesh. But we are called as people with the indwelling Holy Spirit to live in the supernatural by the power of the Holy Spirit. So agape love is volitional, it's unconditional, it's sacrificial. It is also, as I hinted in the last one, it's practical. It's practical, meaning it is about the business of meeting real, tangible needs. Real, tangible needs. Anybody can say, I love you. Some of you have been in that painful place where somebody said it with words, but they never backed it up with their actions. We know that talk is cheap. Don't tell me you love me. Show me that you love me. Meaning that those who are truly loving demonstrate it through their deeds, through their actions. And 1 John 3.17 says this, But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Practically, those who truly love, they get dirty because they get involved in the mess of others, just like Jesus did when he came to earth. Where was Jesus born? In a stable. How do you think that smelled? It was stinky. It was messy. And Christians who truly love will be those who carry with them the aroma of the stable because they themselves get down and dirty with meeting real practical needs the way that Jesus did. And I just need to tell you, that's not my strength. I'm an introvert who likes to be left alone. And I like to plan and be in control of my day and have things go according to my plan. That is not agape love. That's my personality type, and there are some challenges that I have to overcome with that. But for me to truly be a loving person with agape love that looks intent on the needs of others and for their good, I have to lay down my control. 
I have to lay down my natural desire to be left alone. And I have to get involved with others and get dirty and get messy. Agape love, because it is sacrificial, it means sacrificing my time, my schedule, and my plans. Some of your lives are just a little too tidy right now, a little too clean. So agape love is volitional, unconditional, sacrificial, practical. Lastly, it is evidential, meaning that it gives evidence of our faith in Jesus Christ. As it says in John 13, 35, by this... All people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Not by your politics, your bumper stickers, your social media posts, but by your love. You see, love is to be the defining characteristic of the believer. Let that sink in for just a moment. Love is to be the defining characteristic of the believer. And then ask yourself the question, is that true of me? When people think of me, do they think of this agape, sacrificial, volitional, practical? Is that what they think of me? Is that kind of love in, in church, First Baptist? Is that what they think of us as a body of believers? Love is to be the defining characteristic of the believer. And as it says in 1 John 3, 14, we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love. Because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. That gets my attention, right? Love is a defining characteristic. Whoever does not love abides in death. We are called. That's just how seriously God takes this. And so agape love is volitional, unconditional, sacrificial, practical, evidential. Let me just put a bow on it by giving a quote from commentator William Barclay, who sums it all up like this. He says, agape, the Christian word, means unconquerable benevolence. It means that no matter what a man may do to us by way of insult or injury or humiliation, we will never seek anything else but his highest good. It is therefore a feeling of the mind as much as of the heart. It concerns the will as much as the emotions. It describes deliberate effort, which we can make only with the help of God. Never to seek anything but the best, even for those who seek the worst of us. So by all means, church, get busy trying harder to produce love, right? No. Wrong. Remember, fruit, including agape love, is not something we produce by trying. It is something we bear by abiding. As Jesus said in John 15, 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, including the fruit of agape love. For apart from me, you can do nothing. And the key to it all, Romans 5, 5, says, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. That is the source. That is the power. 
That is everything we need to do supernaturally, which we cannot do in the natural. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, how thankful we are that in our unworthiness, when we were your enemies, you loved us anyway. And far be it from us to so easily and gratefully receive that love, that agape love from you, and then to withhold it from others. God, we can't do it on our own. It's too hard. Those, those verses about loving our enemies, impossible in the natural. But I know that your word is true, and it tells me I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, and that includes loving my neighbor. That includes loving my spouse, and it includes loving my enemy. So God, all over this place today, would you pour afresh into our hearts, as that Romans 5 passage was saying, would you pour afresh your Holy Spirit with all of the love of God to, to overflowing? May love literally come out our pores as we engage others. And may it be the defining characteristic of our lives. This is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.